0: The History Channel, original podcast. Hey everyone, Sally here. Before we start, we wanted to let you know that what you are about to listen to is the 100th episode of History This Week. 100 weeks of history, 100 episodes. We want to thank all of you who have been listening from the beginning and those who may have more recently joined us. And without further ado, here is episode 100. History This Week, December 15th, 1979. I'm Sally Helm. When Chris Haney and Scott Abbott made a plan to spend time together on this rainy afternoon in Montreal, it probably didn't feel like a life-changing decision. They probably didn't think, you know what, by the end of today, we will have come up with a billion-dollar idea. But they would. The plan that ended up changing their lives was this. Hang out together in the kitchen, have a couple of beers and play Scrabble. But when they go to get out the board, they can't find it. So Haney has to run out to the store and pick one up. He later tells a Florida newspaper, quote, "'When I got back, I thought to myself, "'This is the sixth bloody Scrabble board "'I've bought in my life. "'There must be money in this business.'" 45 minutes later, just one beer in, Haney and Abbott have come up with the idea that will set the course of their futures a board game called Trivial Pursuit. Just a few years later, the game would be huge. We talked about it with one famous trivia master.
1: If you remember the Trivial Pursuit boom of 1984, it was a deeply weird game.
0: That is Ken Jennings who holds the record for longest winning streak in Jeopardy! history.
1: It was in this blue box, like the way brandy would come or something. Or, as that
0: same Florida newspaper put it, quote, a distinguished blue box that looks as if it might
1: hold Godiva chocolates. It kind of had the scrolly letters and then old-timey engravings on the board and 6,000 questions, you know, probably 10 times as much as you need. The game took off.
0: By the end of that 1984 boom, an estimated one in five American households owned a copy of Trivial Pursuit.
1: Everybody was sitting around the picnic table all summer playing Trivial Pursuit. That's how I remember my childhood.
0: And we are still playing trivia today, on our phones, at bars, and in our living rooms, shouting out the answers while watching Jeopardy.
1: What is Tuscaloosa, Alabama? Who's Meatloaf? Who are the Weather Underground? Who's the the what is Scrabble? What is a Waldorf salad?
0: Today, the not-so-trivial history of trivia. What are the origins of this question-and-answer game? And what is it about recalling trivial facts that keeps people coming
2: back for more? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: To get the story on trivia, we went to a guy who's made his name answering questions. Can I start with an easy one? What is your name? Can you introduce yourself to me?
1: I'm uh, Ken Jennings. I'm a writer and I was on Jeopardy 74 times back in 2004. More recently, I'm hosting the show.
0: Winning 74 games on Jeopardy takes work. Jennings told us his preparations left him with a sense of
1: trivia anhedonia
0: or what is the inability to experience pleasure. Can you describe that feeling to me? Like, what does it feel like to stuff your brain with facts in that really intensive way?
1: The joy of trivia is just that it's unexpected, you know? Under your Snapple lid, you learn something about camel's milk or something, and you think, wow, what an odd little nugget of knowledge to find in the stream of life. But when somebody's, you know, cramming for Jeopardy, for example, you feel like you're gorging yourself. You know, it's it's like a Nathan's hot dog eating contest where you're, you're no longer eating for pleasure. You really just have to get as many presidential birth dates and state birds in your brain in the next three weeks as you can.
0: But there's nothing that can totally prepare you for stepping up to the Jeopardy!
1: podium. It's cold on the soundstage. There's kind of a distinct dusty smell of like a, a backstage area. It's a little bit smaller than it looks on TV, but it's much more intense. Jeopardy! seems so chill and sedate when we sit on our couch and kind of, you know, mumble answers through dinner or whatever. But when you actually have to play it in real time, it is a uh, crucible. Your perception of time goes away, the game seems to go by in a second, and suddenly you're blinking like, "Did is that it? Did I win or lose? To he the- won. The
2: a lot. Spin at home. By now... You
1: are very familiar with our current champion. Ken. Who is Rutherford B. Hayes? Yes. What is Vatican II? Right. What is Appalachian Spring? Correct. What is Grant? Grant is right. What is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? You are right again. What's a photographic memory? See that? You got it. Your mind's working well in the mind
2: category.
0: After his time on Jeopardy, Jennings wrote a book about his experience and about the history of trivia. But before we go back to the beginning, let's get some terms straight. So to ask it boldly, just in your mind, what is trivia?
1: even at a basic level, trivia can be two things. It can be the odd fact, or it can be the pastime of trying to remember the odd fact. You know, games and quizzes about odd facts.
0: It is both the game and the facts. And then there are the questions. In his book, Brainiac, Jennings has a whole taxonomy of trivia questions based on the many that he's heard in his life, Starting with what he calls the plain vanilla recall.
1: Just a quick call and response. We spend our whole lives learning facts and they so rarely come up. So it's nice when somebody says, what's the capital of Ecuador? And you can say, Quito.
0: But plain vanilla can get old. So trivia question writers, especially on game shows, will sometimes add a little something extra. Jennings calls this plain vanilla with hot fudge.
1: You know, every game cannot be, what's the capital of Wisconsin? So it has to be a little more interesting. It has to be more like, this capital of Wisconsin is one of only two U.S. cities situated on an isthmus, you know, or or something like that, where the little bonus thing doesn't actually help you solve the question. Really, anybody answering there is like, oh, the capital of Wisconsin is Madison. Right. And on the isthmus, it's still Madison. (laughs) Right. That's just there to make the question a little different than the last time they asked about Madison and maybe give the viewer something fun to remember and store away.
0: He lists a bunch of other categories in his book. There's the huge number question, where the answer is a huge number. There's the puzzler, where the question itself gives you the clues to figure it out. There's something called the elusive everyday
1: detail. Can you visualize or recall something you've seen or heard a million times? I really like these, you know, where it's just something you know you've seen every day. What color are both of the Gs in the Google logo, for example? Like, we've each seen the Google logo tens of thousands of times.
0: Totally. That one is infuriating because I'm like, all right, I know there's red in there. I know there's yellow. I'm pretty sure there's blue.
1: The Gs are both blue.
0: They're both blue. Oh, my God. So, there are the facts themselves, there's the game, and then there are the trivia questions that make up that game. And this practice of quizzing each other on knowledge that some would consider trivial, it goes back a surprisingly long way. Peter Burke, a professor of the history of knowledge at Cambridge University, told us there's evidence that people in 11th century Japan held perfume-guessing competitions. Members of the royal court would try to identify the scents they were smelling. During the Renaissance, the quiz format made its debut in Europe. Young people would ask each other to name obscure passages in Italian literature. But perhaps the most direct ancestor to modern trivia can be found in London at the end of the 17th century. Here's Ken Jennings.
1: There was like a, a newspaper, a newsletter called the Athenian Mercury, where um, people would write in with kind of general knowledge questions, you know, how big was the Tower of Babel? Or why do I sneeze when I look at the sun? And stuff like that. And the London's smartest men would, would try to figure out answers. Before there was Google,
0: there was the Athenian Mercury. Later in Victorian England, some people start collecting their own facts in what they call a commonplace book. At that point in time, a commonplace book is...
1: Basically Uncle John's bathroom reader for Victorian age Britain.
0: But these books are just random facts on a page. Until 1884 when a Massachusetts educator by the name of Albert Southwick publishes one of them in a new format, question and answer. The book is called Quizzism and its Key, Quirks and Quibbles from Queer Quarters. It has hundreds of questions. Things like, what queen of England twice set a price on the head of her brother?
1: (laughs) Is it Elizabeth I? Queen Anne. Uh, Oh right, of course, because the Stuarts had, yeah, they were Scottish (laughs) rebels. That makes sense. Man, he had a good one up his sleeve. I've been stumped, but I have the ultimate revenge of him having been dead for 100 years.
0: (laughs) Great point. The question and answer format has been born. And it may be the case that people in 1800s Massachusetts were sitting around doing what we just did with Ken Jennings, asking each other questions from this book, But trivia doesn't really explode in pop culture until the 1920s, when it shows up in the pages of a popular newspaper comic, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Robert Ripley's comics depicted unbelievable facts about real-life people, like a man who could balance all his weight on his elbow, or someone who walked 12 miles in stilts. Jennings calls Ripley the first true trivia celebrity,
1: like I was getting, you know, a million letters a week from people who wanted to ask him, you know, weird questions or, or to suggest weird facts.
0: Around the same time, there is also a huge boom in crossword puzzles in the U.S. and a rising focus on intelligence testing. The U.S. Army had used a long list of questions called the Alpha Test to assess recruits during World War I.
1: The confluence of all of this was this 1920s bestseller called Ask Me Another, the product of these two out-of-work Amherst alumni who wrote a bunch of quizzes from stuff they were kind of forgetting from college. And then they had the great idea of asking, like, friend-of-friend 1920 celebrities to do the quizzes as well. So you would solve the quiz, and then you would see if you had a better score than Dorothy Parker or, you know, the guy who had just won Wimbledon or Charles Lindbergh or something.
0: Ask Me Another is published in January 1927. So, Ken, we are in 1927 for these questions, Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: Cast your mind back.
0: Under the present laws, could a woman become president of the United
1: States? (laughs) Uh, I bet even in 1927, that was true.
0: Yep. Yes. The answer is yes. So Dorothy Parker is answering this kind of question. So is Charles Lindbergh. As a newspaper puts it the month after the publication of Ask Me Another, the new crazy fad has arrived.
1: And that was an age of fads, you know, like all the flappers doing the Charleston or sitting on flagpoles or whatever. And for a while, they were all sitting around reading each other trivia questions at parties between martinis.
0: One review of the book says it has suddenly become fashionable to ask embarrassing questions. And by the 1930s... That fashion has spread to the radio airwaves.
2: To know how many hearts are there on the 10 of hearts? There are 12 hearts in the 10 of hearts. That is correct.
0: It starts with shows like Professor Quiz and Ask It Basket. Soon after, there's Information Please. Wake up, America. Time to stop the experts. It's a straight-up question-and-answer show, but listeners submit the questions. And if they stump a panel of experts, they win prizes. At first, money, and soon, a copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica, too. Information Please airs over 500 shows and gives away nearly 1,400 copies of the Encyclopedia during its run. Okay, this is from Information Please.
2: What was the name of the cat that witnessed Alice's trip through the looking glass? Oh, uh, I know this. Don't jump at conclusions on this one. Dinah. The name of the cat is Dinah. Now, they all knew it. They all knew it. (laughs)
1: Luckily, that's in the Disney movie. That one got easier since Information (laughs) Please.
0: On Information Please, listeners asked the questions. But other shows crop up where listeners answer.
2: Typical of entertainment, which most critics of radio deplore, but the public enjoys, are the many types of audience participation shows.
0: Live studio audiences would play, or the shows would call up listeners at home.
1: The mainstay of a lot of radio programming in the 40s were these call-in game shows where they'd call your house and somebody could win $150 if they knew the temperature of a refrigerator or, or whatever.
0: These shows got huge. By the end of the 1940s, there were 200 different quiz shows on the air. But not everyone was a fan. In 1946, Brooklyn public librarians announced that they would no longer help people answer radio quiz questions. The staff was totally overrun. And some people thought this whole fad was just silly.
1: There was a lot of kind of intellectual snobbery around these various trivia fads, especially these quiz shows where you know, you'd see letters to the editor from people kind of sniffing that librarians should not be spending all their time answering whatever the question on information, please, was the previous night. You know, that they had matters of serious import to take care of.
0: As one 1946 article put it, quote, the library's research services are too valuable to be prostituted by a small handful of persons too lazy to find their own answers
1: to silly questions. There's probably some level of classism here as well, you know, just these Joes hanging out on their fire escape in Queens. These aren't real pursuers of knowledge. We're going to stick with our professors in tweeds. I think there's some way in which trivia can kind of be a leveling force for knowledge that the ivory towers don't appreciate. But
0: like it or not, radio quiz shows had captured the minds of the masses. And so when commercial TV is legalized in the U.S. in the early 1940s, the major networks know quiz shows are the future.
1: The very first night that American commercial television began, the first things that got broadcast on American TV were versions of popular radio quiz shows. That's how mass culture this was.
0: Those TV shows are like the radio shows on steroids. Ratings go through the roof, prize money too. In September 1955, the first time a contestant wins the full prize money on a show called The $64,000 Question, around 85% of all TV sets in the country are tuned in. The one, two, four,
2: eight, 16, 32, 64, yes, the $64,000 Question.
0: And in a way, it isn't hard to understand why American audiences might have latched on to this sort of right-wrong format. It's a lot simpler than most other elements of daily life.
1: Game shows are kind of a reassuring world where, unlike in politics or advertising or anything else, all questions have a simple and correct answer. There's an authority figure, a godlike authority figure, who will tell you if you are right or wrong. And questions all have answers and nothing goes unsolved by the time the show has ended. Everything has been wrapped up. And I think that's very pleasing.
0: But you know what isn't pleasing? When you discover that reassuring world has been built on a lie.
2: The dramatic climax of the probe of fixed and rigged quiz shows.
1: I think people felt like they'd been made
2: fools of.
0: By the 1950s, TV quiz shows are the hottest thing around. And when a new show called 21 premieres in the fall of 1956, it doesn't particularly stand out from the pack. Like many quiz shows, 21 is built on the idea that contestants are armed with their wits alone.
1: Neither player inside the studios can hear anything until I turn their studios on with switches, which I control right
2: here in front of me. Nor can they see anybody in the television studio audience because of the way the lights are constructed.
0: In November 1956, an English instructor named Charles Van Doren comes on the show as a contestant to challenge the reigning champ, Herbert Stempel.
2: Would you like time to think it over? As much as you can spare.
0: Audiences are on the edge of their seats as Van Doren struggles to get the answers. Oh,
2: I think that Henry VIII married three Catherines. Now, you mentioned uh, Catherine of Aragon. Who was the other Catherine?
0: And achieves nearly superhuman feats of recall.
2: Catherine Howard. Right!
0: After a series of dramatic ties, Van Doren finally beats Stemple and goes on to win more than $100,000. He's a real public darling. But then...
2: Van Doren retracts his earlier denials of getting any assistance. He admits that he received dramatic coaching and the questions and many of the answers.
0: Van Doren later confesses to cheating. And a congressional investigation finds that this is a widespread practice on the popular TV quiz shows. To the quiz-watching public... This is a huge
1: blow. I don't think Americans had ever been lied to by television, or at least they weren't aware that they had. I mean, today that's commonplace. We assume that reality shows are manipulated. Even the ones that seem like we're seeing everything, we're really not. Documentaries have a spin. Even the news might be fake news. But that was all kind of brand new to America in the 50s.
2: Charles Van Doren arrives to apologize and attempt to explain to the millions whose friendship and respect he had won.
1: People had very early parasocial relationships with game show contestants and they felt like they knew them and they were inviting them into their homes. And when they found out that the feats of knowledge they were watching had been faked, it would be like finding out that the Olympics were faked or that Lance Armstrong was juicing, you know, like, oh, well, that wasn't as remarkable as I thought.
0: These cheating scandals stop the trivia trend in its tracks. For the next two decades, radio and TV quiz shows basically go dark until... Let's
2: play Jeopardy!
1: The elevator pitch of Jeopardy! is just like, just as the players were given the answers in the 50s, we're going to give them the answers. But this time there's a twist. <laughs> they have to come up with the questions.
0: Wow, funny to see it as a reaction to having been given the answers. They're like, haha, can't do that again.
1: It was actually Merv Griffin's wife, Julianne. They were on a plane and she said, well, why don't you give them the answers? And Merv said, no, 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 that's the whole problem. And she said, no, 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 listen, 5,280. And Merv said, how many feet in a mile? And that's when Jeopardy! was born. Jeopardy!
0: premieres as a daytime game show in 1964. The format asks three contestants to identify trivia questions, given just the answers. And for the
1: audience at home... Jeopardy! is an interesting case because it's a little bit aspirational. You know, People will watch that show even if they only know two or three clues a night and they still love it.
2: There are your six categories for
1: this half. This one is from the original Jeopardy.
2: In England, early ones were called dandy horses and swift walkers.
1: Um, maybe, I guess I should do form of a question, right? What are bicycles?
2: Bicycles, right.
0: Yes, what are bicycles? It is funny that they were dandy horses and swift walkers. It's just like, okay, what moves? Horses walking. <laughs> they must be sort of like that. In its first 10 years on the air, Jeopardy! brings the quiz show back to life. But it's still just daytime programming, and there aren't really any other trivia shows making their own comebacks.
1: It was really the lone survivor. It was the only link of the family tree that was still producing fruit.
0: That is, until the early 1980s when those two Canadians on that rainy afternoon decide to package trivia up and sell it in a distinguished blue box. Trivial Pursuit revives the genre once again, bringing it into millions of homes. Meanwhile, college students and pub goers are playing trivia games of their own, and that old favorite game show Jeopardy gets its primetime reboot, along with a dazzling new host.
1: Alex Trebek is kind of a sex symbol in the 80s. They kind of marketed him that way with his, with his debonair mustache. He was kind of a Don Johnson figure in a, in a lot of the ads. I don't think people remember that. Then you don't
2: mind being in Jeopardy? Jeopardy is my life. It's the second it's the most exciting game I know.
1: Clearly, there is something in the water. Trivia is kind of a boom and bust cycle. And in 1984, Gen X and their parents are ready for trivia.
0: We picked a question out of that first trivial pursuit box from 1984. Who sent the first telegraph message in 1844, what
1: hath God wrought? Oh, is it is it not Samuel Morse? I will say Morse.
0: It is Samuel oh, Morse. Good. It is indeed. I was afraid
1: it was a trick question.
0: No, no. Just an easy one for you, Ken Jennings. Pretty early on, the Trivial Pursuit guys end up with a big lawsuit on their hands. It turns out they'd based a lot of their questions off this series of trivia encyclopedias by a guy named Fred Worth. And he notices, partly because in his books...
1: He had planted a false fact. He had said that Columbo's first name was Philip on the TV show Columbo. And Trivial Pursuit had used that fact. And that was his smoking gun, because Columbo, in fact, does not have a first name and it is not Philip.
0: And that's kind of a grand tradition, right? Like putting a fake definition in your dictionary to see if someone's just copying your dictionary.
1: Yes, dictionaries often have fake words. Road atlases will have fake streets or towns just so that they know if their competitors are are stealing their database.
0: Fred Worth sues. The big question?
1: Can you copyright a
0: fact? And the courts decide, no, facts are facts. You can't own them. It's not the last lawsuit in the history of trivia, There's a case in 2000 involving another big trivia show of the time, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The suit hinges on a seemingly tiny issue. Should a question have used the word what or the word which? The stakes of trivia have gotten extremely high at this point, like a million dollars high. And Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is extremely popular. In its first season, it averaged 29 million viewers per episode.
1: The Gen Xers had their Trivial Pursuit and Alex Trebek, and the Millennials had the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire boom.
0: Though Jeopardy! was still big too. Jennings appears on the show in 2004 to begin his iconic 74-game winning streak. It's still the record for most wins in a row, and many articles published at the time begin to ask, is Ken Jennings the smartest man alive?
1: Our modern idea that people on Jeopardy! represent the best and the brightest I think that's a very, very recent assumption and, you know, kind of a dangerous one because it just means we don't have a lot of other intellectual role models anymore. For much of the 20th century, we could point to somebody like Einstein. You know, there'd be public figures like that who were public intellectuals. Who are those people now? It's kind of game show champions by default, unfortunately. Like Ken Jennings. But I guess, you know, I should make clear, that doesn't mean that something like Jeopardy is a pure index or ranking of of American intelligentsia. You know, there's a lot of luck involved in all these shows and some degree of privilege. Not everybody deals with the same upbringing and background, and there's not perfect equity of opportunity on, on any trivia game.
0: But on the set of a trivia show, it can feel like a pure battle of wits. The simple right or wrong answer. The rush of satisfaction when you know the fact. Is that, I don't know, like healthy for society to sort of gamify knowledge in that way?
1: We've gamified everything else. In general, is it good to create that kind of competitive adrenaline urge to everything? I don't know, but knowledge needs all the help it can get, I think. You know, like knowledge needs a press agent. And if it's going to be trivia, so be it. You know, If, If that's what makes a bunch of kids think it's fun to remember stuff, that's great that's great. It, it shows them that the facts they know have value, which is true. I think we need more people who think that.
0: Thanks for listening to History This Week. We here at the show do believe that remembering facts is fun. So stick around until the end of the episode to test your knowledge of trivia that you may have heard on this very podcast. For historical facts that you can see, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And if you want to get in touch, please, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. A very special thanks today to our guest, Ken Jennings. He's the author of Brainiac, Adventures in the Curious, Competitive, Compulsive World of Trivia Buffs, and the host of the history podcast, Omnibus. Thanks also to Professor Peter Burke, who shared his expertise on the history of knowledge with us, including about those perfume-guessing competitions in Japan. He is the author of many books, including What is the History of Knowledge?, and thanks to NYC Trivia League and Slantcha, where the History This Week team celebrated our hundredth episode by trying out Trivia ourselves. History this week, November 10th, 2021. <laughs> this episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. You might
1: have the most you know what? He might have You're the most I'm gonna switch it. You are? I'm gonna switch it. Are you oh.
2: sure? are
0: you and sure? Julia Press.
2: These <laughs> outdoor I don't know. dining structures is like all of a sudden I'm intimately close with this man in his cap.
0: History this week is also produced by Julie Magruder.
2: I think I think we had really a lot of good teamwork. I think we bonded. I think we will now produce better episodes.
0: And me? Sally Helm. No Harry Potter questions in the magic section. Not one magical lore question was
2: included there. <laughs>
0: that was McCamamu Lynn, one of our executive producers. Our other executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosado. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. And now, we give you a series of actual questions asked to Ken Jennings on Jeopardy. The answers can all be found in past episodes of History This Week. Get ready to play along. Okay, these first two are puzzlers. There are clues in the question. Number one. A Montgolfier is a Louis XVI chair with a back often shaped like one of these. Number two. When giving your pennies to UNICEF on Halloween, hold one back for this guy five days later, if you're British. All right, now here comes some plain vanilla recall for you. Number three, this Braves slugger hit 375 of his 755 career home runs in the 1960s. Number four, It's said Nero did this while Rome burned in 64 AD. Number five. On March 3rd, 1934, this public enemy escaped from Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana, allegedly using a wooden gun. And a recent one to wrap us up. Number six. After Antietam, Lee withdrew into Virginia and whooped Burnside at this December 13th, 1862 battle. Go to history.com slash htw100 to find out how you did and compare yourself to Ken Jennings. The answers were, drumroll please, Number one, balloon. Number two, Guy Fox. Three, Hank Aaron. Four, fiddled, five, John Dillinger, and six, the Battle of Fredericksburg. Thank you so much for listening to History This Week and for playing along. We will see you next week.